Hello and welcome back to The Nowhere Office. I'm Julia Hobsbawm. And I'm Stefan Stern. In this programme, we explore the present and future of what we call The Nowhere Office, how our working lives are evolving and what the future may look like. And we ask, what are our great expectations in making hybrid work? Today's episode is brought to you in association with Microsoft. Their conferencing tool, Microsoft Teams, enables teams to stay connected, access shared content anytime to learn, plan and innovate together. Microsoft Teams is for businesses that need easy remote solutions, be that teleconferencing, instant messaging or document sharing. And interestingly, this programme is all about team playing in the Nowhere office, isn't it, Stefan? Yes, we will be taking a wide look at how hybrid is working out, the rewards and risks of the new hybrid working environment, and we ask whether we've had expectations that were too great, not great enough, or just right. Coming up in today's episode. We noticed that meetings increased by 252% as people went into meeting overload because, you know, you didn't have that serendipitous moment of meeting someone in the corridor anymore. You had to create a meeting to to collaborate. And what we're seeing now is that, you know, people were working without breaks. And we know that's not good for any of us, right? Flexible working does not equal always on. I'm an orthodontist, so I use braces to move people's teeth. I can actually look in their mouth every single week through their phone and and use that programme to actually look after my patients even better than I was before, because I can see them every week rather than every six weeks. There is definitely a need for all of us just to be that bit more cyber aware, security conscious, looking for, you know, those signals, things that just don't quite look right. I think actually from the recent Microsoft Work Trend Index, there is a real concentration actually on the difficulty of the expectations of the workers, which was about full autonomy over when, where, how they work. And from on high, which is, I want you all to be in the same place at the same time. And this strata in between that's desperately trying to manage expectations of both. So we're now going to take a deep dive into the expectations people have about how to make hybrid work actually work. And coincidentally, great expectations, making hybrid work work is the subject of the new Microsoft Trends Index for 2022. Absolutely vital reading for anybody that wants to understand the landscape. And here to explain it and drill into the data more precisely, we're delighted to have with us Ali Wright, who heads up small business for Microsoft in the UK. It's an amazing moment, isn't it, in Mm. the lives of small businesses. Can you just say what's what's your big takeaway about this moment at the right now? I think the big takeaway is that we're effectively not the same people that went home you know, in early 2020 and left our offices, the collective experience of the past 24 months has left a lasting imprint on us, fundamentally changing how we define the role of work in our lives. And the data shows, you know, the great reshuffle is far from over. You know, employees everywhere are kind of thinking they're they're worth it equation and they're voting with their feet, which is really, really interesting. And it's a bit of a problem, I think, or certainly a challenge for leaders to think about as they move forward. There is really an asymmetry, isn't there, between what bosses and managers and leaders want 
and what everybody else wants. I mean, you know, 50% of leaders from your data shows that they want full-time presenteeism back. Well, they haven't got a hope in hell of it, have they? Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. And I think leaders have gone through enormous pressure over the last two years to keep, you know, the lights on, the businesses working, etc. And, you know, often they think that the the fix to the current situation is to get everyone back in the office. And that's that's the solve for. And the 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 research is clearly showing that managers feel really kind of wedged between their employees and the leaders of the business and that the majority of them feel really disempowered to meet the expectations of their workforce around flexible working. Last year 18% of people left their jobs. The reasons that they're telling us that they're leaving their jobs is absolutely around personal well-being and mental health and work-life balance. So those are absolutely coming out as the four of what people are looking for in, in roles. Now, Ali, could you perhaps take us back to March 2020 and that first moment of, I suppose, panic or certainly shock uh, among businesses when they realised that they were going to be locked down, they were going to have to keep the show on the road somehow. What sort of calls were you taking? How much fast on the job learning was going on? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually. So there was a lot of panic and a lot of help how do I do this in a really quick way? And certainly, you know, I was really proud of the team as how, how we stepped up to, to help customers work through very quickly, as did our partner channel, to, to help small businesses really work that through in, in a very rapid way. You know, we moved call centres from in the office to working remotely within two to three days. You know, it's incredible. And certainly from, you know, a stats perspective, Prior to that time, we had about 20 million active users on Teams every month. This is global numbers, right? It's now over 270 million people using Teams um, every single month. And that's across businesses of all sizes, shapes, industries. You know, there's many industries that people think would never have, have moved to Teams, never have moved to remote working and hybrid. And actually, you know, we've got some great stories. For example, Bristol dental specialists who, you know, you wouldn't think that dentists could work in a hybrid world, but actually they adopted teams really nicely. And actually they can take on new clients really, really fast. This reminds me very much of what happened with the mobile phone industry mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the examples of M-Pesa transforming remote access to finance in Africa, for example. The pandemic has really put teleconferencing front and centre. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a, a candid question. Mm -hmm. Was the technology of Teams ready for such massive constant use or did you have to iterate and, you know, redesign it as you went along? So, so Teams was already a very stable platform. I think what the pandemic has allowed us to do is to really understand how people are using Teams. So in addition to the, the index that we do, the study of 31,000 customers across about 30 countries, we also look at all of the different anonymized metrics that we're seeing from Microsoft 365. So not just Teams, but our Office platform, you know, email, etc. And really understand how people are using the platform and what um, features would be great to introduce to help them. So just to give you some, some examples and bring that to life a little bit, you know, we noticed that meetings increased by 252% as people went into meeting overload because, you know, you didn't have that serendipitous moment of meeting someone in the corridor anymore. You had to create a meeting to, to collaborate. 
And what we're seeing now is that, you know, people were working without breaks. And we know that's not good for any of us, right? The brain needs time to, to reset between meetings. And so giving people things like focus time where they could work without distractions, allowing them to, to book shorter meetings as standard, you know, thinking about ad hoc meetings, you know, different features have come in over the past two years that are just absolutely helping people understand how they are using um, teams, the um, insights that you can now get around your own usage as a manager, your team's usage, understanding if people are working out of hours, that type of thing, you know, trying to avoid burnout, all really core to understanding what the impact of this always on culture has been. And, you know, making sure that people know that flexible working does not equal always on. And Ali, that, that point about user experience, also from Microsoft's point of view, it, it is a sort of almost paradox, a sort of quirky thought that it was a relatively underused asset, Teams, for example, and then suddenly massively, massively used. What does that teach the company about usability, making options obvious to customers and clients and making the most of the flexibility that you, you, you already got? Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting because we probably don't all use the full function of many of the, the technology that we have in our lives, you know, phones, etc. And it's really understanding what you can get out of it and being purposeful around it. So we know that even when people have hybrid meetings, 43% of those dialing in say they don't feel included in meetings, for example. Yet 27% of businesses have created new hybrid meeting etiquette guidance, right? So it's thinking about people within this and the processes that you need to put in place to take advantage of all of the different functionalities and to ensure that everyone feels that they've got a seat at the table. I think we have to be far more purposeful about it. As I said, you know, creating team agreements about how you're going to work what methods of communications you're going to use, how you're going to store information and share that and collaborate, which day of the week you're going to be in the office and why. You know, the the, the study showed us that 38% of hybrid workers are really confused about why and when to be in the office. I think, you know, in terms of giving some guidance, you know, make every meeting hybrid, you know, even even with COVID still around, you know, there are instances, as you say, that where people just can't make it. My son was off school, you know, two weeks ago again, back into virtual lessons. You know, I, I couldn't come into the office, but I had that option to dial in and be as productive as, as before. A lot of managers who are going to run hybrid meetings are going to need a lot of, they're going to need a bit of training, aren't they? A bit of help to be thoughtful, purposeful, successful. If you're having an online meeting, as it were, everyone should be online. But what you've described in your hybrid is that, in fact, in fact, you sort of create that by everyone being on Teams, even if they're physically in the office or not. Mm -hmm. uh, it's this sort of thing that's going to take a while to master, isn't it? Yes, definitely. And, you know, there's loads of resources that we make available for free to think about these things, like the Teams agreements, and, and how you come together that will help managers kind of navigate this as well as all of the you know the points the data points from this work trends index i think you know what you're talking about is as work gets more flexible we've got this digital overload and it's really hard to manage and so being intentional thinking about what works for for individuals, their circumstances, but also your teams and your businesses is really important. And starting to iterate and, and be a little bit creative, you know, no meetings Mondays, for example, or, you know, 
we've seen meetings, for example, start later in the day, finish earlier on a Friday. We're seeing more ad hoc meetings. As I said, you know, when when we first went into the pandemic, meetings spun up, you know, as I said, mm. 252%. And the increase in chats went up about 32%. We're now seeing 60% of meetings being far more ad hoc and kind of 15 minutes and less, right? And so I think, mm. you know, think about the the work you can do, which can be asynchronous, i.e. people don't necessarily have to work together and they can do when they want, wherever they want. Stefan has also triggered a thought in mm-hmm. me about flexibility of thinking, Ali, because mm. in some ways we are multi-generational, aren't we, in the workplace? <laughs> so the Gen Zs quite mm-hmm. clearly want uh, oh, freedom, flexibility. Mm-hmm. Those yep. of us that are older than Gen Z, millennials, boomers... Mm-hmm exes, even seniors, we are late adopters of some of that technology. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether we're all going to have to reach a bit of a negotiated settlement about the behaviours that are right with this technology. I'm certainly finding a lot of clients of of the Nowhere office are saying, Mm -hmm. we are experimenting with no meeting Monday, yeah. or I'm coming across case studies where there is, you know, Wellbeing Wednesday. Fortnum mm-hmm. and Masons are using a Wellbeing yeah. Wednesday mm-hmm. with time off in lieu for people who work in the shop floor. Big piece of research from the University of Reading showing that actually, if you really have two days a week of no meetings at all, productivity overall goes up. Mm-hmm. So it mm-hmm. feels like we are in the middle of a of a learning and an educating process as mm-hmm. well. Would you agree with that? Completely, yeah. I mean, your point about the, the Gen Z community, absolutely. So 58% of them are considering changing jobs in the next year compared to 43% overall, right? And we know through job postings on LinkedIn that they're more likely to apply if it mentions flexibility in, in kind of remote working as a potential. So we definitely are in a position where we have to think about this differently and learn wellness Wednesdays we do that here at Microsoft we take two hours on a Wednesday afternoon it's kind of that midweek gives you a boost and it's just thinking about new ways to inject creativity energy back into the week the working week oh Stefan loads to chew on there wasn't that great well, I think it was it was great to hear that sort of candid uh, view and experience that it's a, it's a test for everyone, even senior execs at Microsoft. You know, we're all learning and we've also got to um, eat our own pet food, as it were, you know, make our own products work. And I think that was, yeah, that was very interesting to hear. I love the point about culture first. I'm hearing that a lot. And in fact, chief culture officers are springing up all over the corporate world precisely to go alongside the institutional institutional changes. And I also loved what Ali said about team agreement. I mean, I don't think she meant to Mm. pun on Microsoft Teams, Mm. but I think that idea of buy-in and iteration really resonated for me. Absolutely. And a culture, I mean, that sense, as you mentioned, the, the, the reshuffle, the, the, the rethinking, that phrase that people are going to come up with, especially perhaps the, the under 40s, you know, you can't make me, you know, bosses can't make people show up full time anymore. It's not, it's really not going to happen. They're going to leave if you do try and make them. And so there's got to be agreement. And this is going to make management harder, but more interesting as well. Although I'm pretty shocked by the 252% increase in meetings, aren't you? 
Well, meetings are they're hard to resist. It's like uh, not weed, isn't it? They do spring up. But uh, we always said we should be asking ourselves at the start, why is this meeting happening? Is this actually an email? Is this a phone call? And now we've got another bit of technology. That's my fear that it'll get out of hand. But I think that's why good managers are going to keep a grip on it and use it you know, purposefully, as Ali said. Well, Ali Wright mentioned the success story of a dentist adopting Microsoft Teams. So now uh, it's our turn in the dentist chair as we join today's panel discussion. And we're trying to understand how hybrid is working out for anyone who joins a meeting or some sort of consultation digitally. What are the rewards for that? But also, what are the risks? What, for instance, have we learned about new possibilities of the technology? And equally, what age-old concerns around privacy and security do we need to bear in mind? To discuss this, we have two excellent perspectives. We have a pioneering dentist, Ben Cross, who transformed his practice during the pandemic by creating digital-first remote consultations. And then we have Microsoft's business security lead, Paul Kelly. But Ben, let's start with you. How do you do digital consultations when surely the whole experience of being in any kind of medical environment needs physical proximity? We started doing the virtual consultations because during lockdown, we were prevented from seeing our patients. So we wanted a way that we could actually communicate effectively with them and see what was going on in their mouths rather than just replying on a, a phone call, which is pretty difficult to get information across. And then we've, we've soon worked out that people actually didn't want to see us. It was it was amazing. We we assumed that the patients would see massive value in sitting in our chairs and we put them in a throne in the middle of the room and, and all stared at them and made them feel uncomfortable. And, and suddenly we realised that we could actually get to the stage where patients were feeling uh, really comfortable, very happy about sitting in their lounge rather than our dental chairs. And we got way more information than we expected because with a, a good video link, then you can actually see a lot in a patient's mouth, especially if they're compliant and we'll open it for you. What we've gone on to do afterwards is actually use, use a, a product called dental monitoring, whereby patients can use their own mobile phone to scan their teeth every week. And I, I, I can then monitor, I'm an orthodontist, so I use braces to move people's teeth. I can actually look in their mouth every single week through their phone and, and use that program to actually look after my patients even better than I was before. And there's there's no parking involved, there's no driving, there's no sitting in a traffic jam for half an hour before getting to me and worrying about being late. It makes life so much easier. I mean, what's fascinating is presumably you never anticipated this pre-pandemic. You had never imagined there would be this much acceptance and in fact, welcoming of digital first consultations. It took you by surprise, I presume. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of those things. But we, we started off doing it you know, really forced by not being able to see our patients. And, and it's one of those things we thought, oh, well, we'll give this a go and see how it works. Because I, I, I had patients who bits digging in and bits falling off their braces. And I'd be sending them wire clippers through the post to, to try and work out how to, how to get themselves out of pain. And then with, with, with the, as soon as you introduce video to the mix, then, then everything becomes a lot easier to explain. What about trust and privacy? I mean, uh, you're converted and clearly for convenience mm. and necessity it worked, but you must have people that feel a bit icky about opening their mouths in front of a camera, surely. Is there uh, not, did you not have to win anybody round or reassure anybody I think people are so used to using video for all, all manner. They were doing, doing schooling on video. 
lots of business meetings going on on video. They're pretty much fed up of being on the uh, on the video call all the time anyway. And I think acceptance has been no issue whatsoever. We've we give all of our staff a lot of training on confidentiality, making sure that they're aware to be in a quiet place away from family members that could overhear a conversation, making sure that we don't have records switched on unless the patient's consented to that, uh, and making sure that we have to make sure that all our notes are still written contemporaneously. So as long as, as long as we're storing data appropriately and that we don't have people overhearing conversations that are confidential, then, then people have been very good about that. So Paul, whether it's the state of your teeth or your company's finances, or the state of your marriage, no one really wants private details uh, being accessed by uh, third parties who shouldn't have access to it. So Ben's talked persuasively about how confident patients are, but how about the rest of us? How about clients? How can you assure them that these are secure, confidential meetings that won't won't be going to the wrong eyes and ears? Yeah, so I, I just love that innovation and how far we've come culturally as well in terms of the story that Ben tells there. But one of the last things you said was the confidence level in terms of how data is handled, treated, stored, the precautions, the security controls around that. And so, you know, in choosing whatever piece of technology that you use to interact with your clients or your partners, those security benchmarks are so important. You know, in this case, it's choosing, making sure you choose a solution whereby the data is encrypted in transit and at rest. Also, we talk a lot about basics in terms of cyber hygiene, you know, with this increased threat level, both in terms of the international situation and indeed criminals, that, you know, there are still basic precautions that all organizations can take, small or large, that will protect them up to 98% against these these common threats. Well, indeed, I think risk is something of a specialist uh, subject for you, not that we're on mastermind i think you wrote something recently about <laughs> glad, glad um, for that <laughs> um <clears throat> perimeter based and identity based security now that sounds very sophisticated i'm not sure at first sight if i really understand what that is so perhaps you could help set that out for us within the security world there's kind of an old world view and a more modern new world view the old world view if you liken it to a castle's perimeter wall and the thinking being, well, if you solidify um, your fortifications at the outside perimeter, you'll be secure. However, particularly with hybrid working, the data, the people, their devices have left the perimeter. They've left the castle walls. They're now outside working from a coffee shop, from home, from a multitude of devices, accessing a multitude of applications, really critical data, patient data, financial data, PII, personal data. And so paradigm, therefore, that you know we recommend and we build into our capability is something we call zero trust. And that doesn't mean that you don't trust people. Of course not. But it's saying that you carry out checks on the device, on the person's login, on what they're trying to access, the application, the depth, the network, the data. Is there anything unusual in that that we haven't seen before? It goes back more than 20 years, actually, when Bill Gates back in the day launched what he called the Trustworthy Computing Initiative, which is really a cultural as well as a visionary statement within Microsoft that we were on this path to build in these controls. I mean, our, our goal is that the solutions are loved by employees and end users in terms of how they make them more productive and make enable them to work from a hybrid location, but then trusted 
by their IT and their security team. So, Ben, finally, have you got anything that you are cautious about or do you actually really only see upside? Because that's what it sounds like. It's all upside. I think as long as we've got the, the security sorted out and that patients trust and the advice that's coming over and that we can get that face-to-face um, interaction and, and making sure that people feel comfortable before they come to see us, then it's win-win. Presumably there's always a big crush for people trying to make appointments at 2.30 though, Ben. <laughs> dental time is a dental time is, is well famous. Okay, well I can't say Sorry. you've solved my fear of the dentist, but you've made me think that I need to visit the dentist more on screen than in person. We would both like to thank very much Ben Cross and Paul Kelly. Thank you both. Well, now it's time for an excerpt from the audiobook version of Julia's new book, which, if you didn't know, is called The Nowhere Office. So what does Julia mean when she talks about this emerging concept? The Nowhere Office is office life, but without the formal fixtures and fittings we took for granted before the pandemic. It sees a role for the office, but a very changed one. Instead of a single fixed place or schedule, it envisages a mobile, hybrid world, which uses HQ offices wisely for certain functions and not for others, It is a new era in professional work which blows away the cobwebs of a stale working model of management and presenteeism and replaces it with a fairer and more functional system that works not only from the top down, but also across an organisation. A wonderful taste there of Julia's book, The Nowhere Office, which you can, of course, hear more by downloading or buying wherever you get your reading or audio listening from. And now it's time for our final a guest of the episode, who Julia will now introduce. We're delighted to be joined by the woman who arguably predicted this wave of hybrid and flexibility before the pandemic, and that is Annie Auerbach, who is the co-founder of Starling Strategy and the author of a marvellous book, Flex, Reinventing Work for a Smarter, Happier Life. Welcome to the Nowhere Office. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So how did you know that this moment where everybody would be putting their work-life balance, men and women, to the forefront of their working patterns, how did you know that that was coming down the track? Well, I can't say I predicted the pandemic. I absolutely didn't. But in my day job, I work, as you said, I'm the founder of a business called Starling, which is a cultural insight studio. And what we do is we analyse trends and big societal shifts and changes that were happening. I wrote Flex in 2018 and I had been studying it and living it personally for decades. And I really felt that it was a big societal idea that was on the verge of tipping into the mainstream because we were living longer lives and having longer careers and we would need to switch and pivot and adapt as we went through in order to work sustainably. More women globally were in the workplace and that meant that we would have to navigate what was happening at home and the fact that the unpaid labour of the home was largely resting on women's shoulders and how would that play out when we think about the workplace. And we have all these wonderful technologies which are helping us understand our minds, our bodies, 
our performance, when we're at our best, our sleeping patterns, surely we were going to apply that self-knowledge and self-optimization to the way that we were going to work as well. But also more broadly, I was just convinced that this was societally an idea that would reach tipping point because, for example, the pandemic clearly had so many terrible impacts on our lives. But I guess one of the positives is that we were spending more time in our communities. We were investing in them in terms of the money we were spending in them. We were getting to know our neighbors. We were looking out for one another. Um, we know that there's a big global crisis in terms of loneliness. And so the idea that we would be and understand and live and invest in our local communities also felt like a big mm -hmm. unlocking that was needed. Annie, what do you make of those bosses? And we've seen them in some businesses and also in, in, in politics, of course, itching to recreate pre-pandemic world and even a pre-flexibility world where they're saying, right, time to come back. You've had your fun in quotation marks. When you describe the reasons and the need for flexibility, it's very persuasive to me. And, and obviously m many of us have been writing about these things for some time. And yet this strange instinct of some managers to summon people physically back what how, how do you react to that um that trend or that management instinct so yeah it's absolutely right there's been a, a resurgence of what i'd call flexism or pre prejudice against flexible working so you'll see people like jacob rees mogg leaving passive aggressive notes and saying we'll see you back in the office as soon as possible you've got ceo of Get goldman sachs saying working from home was simply an aberration you know loads from the government saying you know the office is the place of vibrancy if you're not there you'll miss out on promotion you will be out of sight out of mind and i i get i guess i wasn't really expecting this because i imagined when flexible work was normalized, some of that prejudice would be dissipated. But then of course it isn't, because the institutions and systems that have served people in power very well for the last two decades, they don't want those to change. Simply, the patriarchy wants us back in the office. Actually, Bruce Daisley, who does a brilliant podcast, I'm sure you know, called Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, did, it, did an interesting study showing that male-dominated firms are more likely to insist on workers going back to the office. So I think it needs a lot of unpicking. It's a weird time. We've proven that flexible working works. We can forget all that, won't they shirk from home stuff? Because, you know, I don't want to talk about productivity anymore. I think we all know that we can be pr productive in wherever we're working, but we're in a strange time. It's kind of birthing pains. We're working through it. There's transition, there's shutdown from on high. And, um, and there's resistance to that at the same time. Don't you think... Annie, that the resistance in some quarters, usually from the C-suite, usually from a certain demographic of usually men, usually white, usually of a certain generation, not completely, to get people back to the office. Don't you think that's because in some respects they still don't understand the technology? I mean, I know a, a group of young women in a very high profile global business who said that their managers are actually asking them back to the office so they can help them with their tech. Yeah. Does that surprise you? Well, it's just depressing, isn't it, really? Well, yes. Okay, so there's a there's a huge emergent need there, which is to understand what tech can do brilliantly and also understand what it can't do. I mean, I think that, you know, we need to think about working in terms of convergence and divergence. So convergence is is when we are back to the office and we're face to face and we're having conversations and maybe the kinds of things that the demographic you've just described julia 
is used to. Everybody being proximate, everybody being present. What is that good for? It's good for conversations. It's good for coming up with ideas. It's good for getting on the same page. But what technology is fantastic at is is what I've you know what we call divergent or asynchronous work, whereby you know we're all on the same page here. I know what I'm supposed to do. Now I'm going to go away and do it in the best way possible for me. I'm going to sit with my headphones on at home or in a coffee shop. I'm going to go into a silo and research or do whatever I need to do, produce my work. And then we will converge again and come back together again. And I think it's more about understanding that tech is good for certain things and very liberating in asynchronous work. And the office is good for certain things um, as well. I wonder if some managers instincts are actually a reaction to this growing awareness that this is actually going to be a slightly tougher, I mean, more interesting, but a tougher job of coordination and organization, this convergence, divergence balance that you describe so nicely. And maybe managers are just a little bit worried about how, how they're going to cope with all this. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it it's no surprise that middle management is much more com complicated now and it's a harder job and I actually don't think that we've given enough thought and resources to those that are trying to logistically cope with all of this so you know we're in this time when where you know people are, are working in a more distributed way and I think actually from the recent Microsoft work trend index there is a real concentration actually on the difficulty of the expectations of the workers which was about full autonomy over when where how they work and from on high which is I want you all to be in the same place at the same time and this strata in between that's desperately trying to manage expectations of both. Annie Auerbach there. I have to say I've had a touch of book envy concerning Annie for some time and her strategic perspectives in person are just as perspicacious. We've had a wonderful mix in this programme, haven't we, Stefan? Shedding light on the practicalities and context of the great expectations of hybrid and how they are, it's still a work in progress after all, working out. Yes, exactly. And one of the things I love about this programme is, is how candid and well-informed our guests always are. I always learn something new from them. Unfortunately, though, now we've got to uh, flex our muscles and, and leave your ears alone a bit for a while. Uh, next time, we're going back across the pond again, returning to take a specific look at the American workplace. So do make sure you join us for that. Thanks to all of today's guests. That's Alison Wright, Ben Cross, Paul Kelly and Annie Auerbach. You've been listening to The Nowhere Office with me, Julia Hobsbawm. And me, Stefan Stern. This is an Editorial Intelligence production and today's episode was brought to you in association with Microsoft. The executive producer is me, Julia Hobsbawm, and our producer is Callum McRae. Follow us on Twitter at TheNowhereOffie1, number one. Thanks for listening.